What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Plankin. And I'm Mark Keeson. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Danny, I'm going to turn the tables on you. I'm going to ask you the question. What the hell is going on? Well, then I'm going to do the Mark routine, which is, folks, we understand from people who know better than us, your phone is in your hand. So press, subscribe, review, share the podcast. We're growing our audience and you're helping us. So thanks for that. Other than growing our audience, what the hell is going on, Danny? You know what? We've been watching over the last week as the Biden administration has flipped and flopped and flopped and flipped on the question of whether to supply these MiG jets to Ukraine to help them defend against the increasing bombardment of civilian sites by the Russian forces. And it all culminated in this really bizarro world press conference that the president gave, which seemed fairly tough, and then was followed by a tweet that said, we're not going to be fighting for Ukraine in Ukraine. We're only protecting NATO because fighting in Ukraine would mean World War III. What the heck? So I wrote a column on this this week on Tuesday, and I had to rewrite it three times during the course of the day because the story kept shifting. The Poles have about 30 MiGs. MiG fighter jets that the Ukrainians know how to use, know how to fly. There are other East European countries like Romania and Bulgaria and Slovakia that also have jets. There's about 70 in total that could be transferred over to the Ukrainians to defend their country because President Zelensky is saying we're getting bombarded by the air. There's increasing civilian deaths taking place. They're intentionally attacking residential neighborhoods, housing blocks, maternity hospital, and all these things like that. He said to the world, either establish a no-fly zone or give us the planes to do it ourselves. And I understand why we can't establish a no-fly zone because there's a danger of getting into combat with the Russians, but there's no excuse for not giving them the planes to do it themselves. So the Poles are trying to negotiate with the United States because they're under threat too. So if they give up their MiGs, that's a significant part of their Air Force. They want to get some used F-16s as backfill. And the Biden administration says, well, we don't have enough F-16s in our inventory, which is just total BS. First of all, you could send a U.S. squadron of F-16s temporarily to protect them, to make up for the lost MiGs, or they could just go to Lockheed Martin, the manufacturer of the F-16, and say, hey, I know you got a bunch of F-16s going to Spain, but Poland's more important right now, so we're going to ask you to divert those, and then you can sell the next round to Spain or whatever country it is. And instead of that, they don't want to do it, so they decided to try and blame the Poles. And this is really where it goes. This is where it went off the rails. So why are Mark and I even interested in this story? It seems to be sort of a fiasco. But I think this is illustrative of the confusion inside the Biden administration. We've said this before on the podcast where they seem to really know what they were doing in the run up to the war. But then they kept saying, our intel says we're going to have a war, we're going to have a war. And then they had a war and they were like, wow, we're really surprised. So let's talk about, let's actually do the TikTok of what happens with the MiGs. So the Ukrainians go to the Poles and they ask for the MiGs. The Poles come to us and say, we'll give the MiGs if you help us. The Biden administration's initial answer is, no, we can't. And then 
Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, goes on the Sunday shows about a week ago and says, no, no, you know, if Poland wants to give them to them, that's fine. We have a green light. Green light. That's and, the word to use. And then you point out to, and you actually quoted the tweet on our last podcast with Radek Sikorsky, that in fact the Polish Prime Minister tweets out in response, quote, fake news. This is not a done deal. And so the polls immediately suspect that the Biden administration is setting them up to be blamed for not helping Ukraine. So they're furious. So what do they do? They put out a statement that says, we will give the MiGs to Ukraine immediately and free of charge. And we are offering to send them to the United States to Ramstein Air Base in Germany for transfer to Ukraine. And we just ask that they give us F-16s at the appropriate time in exchange. And what they did is they basically said, you're not throwing this on us. America, let's make clear who's the obstacle here if this doesn't happen. And that's exactly what it did. They said, now it was in Joe Biden's hands. And if the planes didn't go, it wasn't because Poland was dragging its feet. It's because the Biden administration didn't want to do it. And then the Pentagon holds a press conference where they finally come clean. They said, we oppose the transfer of the planes to Ukraine because it would be seen as escalatory. And so they were lying the whole time about this, about a green light. I mean, there's the green light. They were okay with these planes taking off from NATO bases in Poland and going to Ukraine. And that wouldn't have been escalatory. That wouldn't have been causes belli for the Russians. But sending them from Ramstein, a NATO base in Germany, would be escalatory. It's ridiculous. And the other piece of bullshit about this is, of course, that we've already been supporting the Ukrainians. Yay for the Biden administration for supporting the Ukrainians with Stinger missiles. Which have the same mission as a MiG, which is to blow up a Russian plane. Right, and we've been giving them stingers, we've been giving them (laughs) the Star Streaker, which I had actually never heard of, and javelins. Now, I don't know where people think those things are coming from, but I can assure you they're not coming out of Joe Biden's back pocket. We're transferring (laughs) them either out of the United States or out of some base in Europe. They have to be transferred to a base in Europe. from a base in Europe, and they're lethal then how is giving them the MiGs from a NATO base escalatory? How is it involving NATO more than those star streakers and those javelins and those stingers? This is nothing other than garbage. But it was a rare window into the kind of machinations that are going on behind the scenes in the Biden administration. And one of the most interesting things to see, and I've actually really been heartened by this, is Congress, you and I know this so well, and we do say it often, but it's true, Congress is often better than the administration, Democrat, Republican, whatever, is often better further out front. And we saw a lot of that. So first of all, we see that the Biden administration doesn't want to ban oil from Russia, right? But then all of a sudden, Congress moves to ban oil. The White House opposes it. Yes. And then they do it. Only after Democrats in Congress started coming to them and saying, do this, yes. But it's more, more sanctions on individuals. Only after the Congress is pressuring them. Tighter swift sanctions. Only after the Europeans do it. The bottom line is they're not leading from behind. They're just behind. Yes, I think that is exactly right. And as you said, they did a great job in the run-up to the war, you could say, in terms of exposing the false flag operations that the Russians were going to do, the pretext that they were going to use. But the reality is they could have done a lot more before the war. Why are we sending the MiGs now? Why are we in the middle of a conflict? They say, we can't send them into contested airspace. That was the phrase they're saying. First of all, I'm sorry. 
It may be militarily contested airspace, but it's the sovereign airspace of the Ukrainian government. Vladimir Putin doesn't get a veto on what goes into Ukrainian airspace. The only person who can veto something going into airspace or authorize it is President Zelensky. So the idea that we're even conceding to Putin that he has any say in what goes into the airspace of Ukraine is an absolute capitulation. I'm so frustrated, but I think I've said this earlier in the podcast, and I've said this on Fox News. When you're in a situation like this, we both come from the politics ends at the water's edge school of foreign policy, that when there's a war going on where freedom is at stake, we all want to rally around the president. We all want to help him. We want him to do the right thing. And it is so frustrating to watch how he's just being dragged into every action that could have been done. We could have sent these MiGs before the war and then there wouldn't be contested airspace. We should have been arming Ukraine to the teeth to deter Putin from going in. President Zelensky said in that call to Congress, if you had imposed the sanctions earlier, Putin wouldn't have invaded. Maybe, maybe not. But one of the reasons why he might have been encouraged to invade is because, well, in 2014, when he invaded, the Obama administration did not impose tough sanctions on him. And who was the vice president then? Joe Biden. And so maybe they're not that interested. Maybe they're not really willing to do it. Well, how could we have expressed our willingness to do those sanctions is to impose them before the war, preemptively. Now, I mean, look, I think we talk a lot about deterrence. And what deterrence means is that you're trying to stop somebody from doing something. Putin is already now in Ukraine. Deterrence measures don't work. That is the problem. Kim Kagan said this beautifully in a conversation we were having. She said, sanctions, all of these measures that we are now imposing They're not going to do anything about a 40-kilometer-long supply line, planes flying in the air, hospitals being taken out. That's punishment. It's not deterrence. And the punishment is hard. I mean, I agree it's going to hurt Putin. It's probably going to destroy the Russian economy. It's probably going to take down a lot of Russians who don't like Putin along with it. But so what? We need to stop this war. And that's what the deterrence measures should have been. And so now we need to think about how this war is going to end and how it is going to end to Putin's disadvantage. And that's the conversation that I think isn't being had in the White House. I think the White House talk about World War III is a completely false choice. This is what Obama used to do. Oh, capitulation or war. When we fought about Syria, right? You have to do something about murder of half a million people in Syria. Well, you just want us to go into World War III in Syria. And the answer is, that's not what's waiting for us in Syria. Look how Putin is performing in Ukraine. They're Against the Ukrainian army is kicking his ass. You think he wants that to fight NATO? With, that lady with a pickle jar, right? Who yes. threw it? There's some people who don't know this, that literally a babushka with a pickle jar took down a Russian drone by throwing it out the window and knocking the drone out. Those are some heavy pickles, I will say. <laughs> but, he can't beat a babushka in Ukraine. How is he going to beat NATO? That, that's, so these are false choices that are being presented to the American people. But and the that, problem becomes that there is still an issue of deterrence. I'll disagree with you slightly because what are people worried about? People are worried about that he may do a Grozny-like destruction of Ukraine. They're worried about that he might use chemical or biological weapons. They're worried that he might escalate and use a tactical nuclear weapon. All the weakness we project with these decisions encourages him And we need to still deter him from escalating. What we need for him to accept is that he's never going to get Kiev, that he's walked into a quagmire that he can't get out of, and his best option is to pull back. And we need to be projecting strength in order to do that. How do you project strength? All 70 MiGs should be in Ukraine by now, right? And for every weapon that we could give them, stop showing weakness and saying, I'm afraid of World War III. You know what? 
It's not it, it World just, War III, it, not in the offing. Exactly. So there's a ton of stuff more I want to talk about, but one of the things that really has warmed my heart is to see Democrats in Congress challenging Amen. the president. The White House sent up a bill asking for X amount of money for the Pentagon and for Ukraine. They upped the amount. That's the kind of thing that Congress has done historically. They've been supine way too long, and I think they're finally waking up. And we've got one of the Democrats who is leading that effort to do that with us today. So I'm really happy that Jimmy Panetta was game to join us, apart from the fact that he is the son of the former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. Really, Former Secretary of Defense, former Director of the CIA, former White House Chief of Staff, just a legendary national security figure. Truly. so. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That is exactly right. Mr. Panetta represents California's 20th congressional district. He's really got a catbird seat in Congress because he sits not only on the Armed Services Committee, but also on the Committee on Ways and Means, which is all about the money. And he agreed to come and talk to us. We're thrilled to have him. Here's our interview. Well, Congressman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that, Mark. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate this opportunity. I, I hope it's not like you felt the other day on NBC's Meet the Press when you were like, time out. You guys are all Democrats. I'm the only Republican. <laughs> and I'm putting up this fight, which I thought you did a wonderful job, by uh, the way, in, thank, in, dealing, thank you. in dealing with some of the comments that were coming your way. So well, no, You're the only Democrat. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, what what I'm saying. Saying. that's what I'm saying. That I we, it's not turned on me. At this table, we know who the Democrats and the Republicans are. There's no one denying that they're a Democrat, (laughs) despite what we all know. There's so much going on in the world right now. And one of the things that is really, really important, and Mark and I really believe in, is having a strong pro-defense, a strong strong America voice. You're one of these people on Capitol Hill, a real sort of a hawkish Democrat, basically, despite coming from California. Right. What more do you think that we could be doing to deter Russia from escalating further to help Ukraine win? Yeah. Let me just back up a little bit and take back a little bit of the hawkish Democrat. (laughs) Okay. Squish up on us. I I am very focused on the NDAA because I represent my district. And my district is the central coast of California, and we have many military installations there that bring in over 15,000 jobs and 1.4 billion to the economy. So I am focused on my district when I support the NDA. At the same time, I think it doesn't just bring community security, we have to focus on our national security. And that's the the great thing about the NDA is we can do that, and that's why I support the NDA. So you're a well-armed dove. I represent installations, and I cannot stress that enough. Now, that being said, the NDA does a lot for our national security as well, obviously. And that's why I was so proud to vote the other night that not only did it have the appropriate amounts to support our national security, but the additional Ukraine supplemental of $13 billion that will go $6.5 to armaments, $6.5 to aid. So obviously these are things that we're going to continue to have to do because I do not believe that this will be a short war. This will be a war of attrition, if you ask me. And therefore, we need to make it clear that we are going to be right there. And our role in Congress is to ensure that we are right there. Now, obviously, we want to do everything we can, as I said earlier, to support Ukraine and not go to war with Russia. I cannot stress that enough. And so what do you do to deter Russia 
and defend Ukraine. What can you do? Well, I think we definitely have to ensure that we will continue to go down the path of what we can do in Congress, sanctions, oil embargo, making sure that they're removed from the most favored nation, MPTR, doing those proper things that we have our role in Congress. Now, at the same time, the funding of armaments has to be there. We have to ensure that the Ukrainians who are showing so much will and so much determination that they literally are inspiring my constituents, what I normally get the crap kicked out of me for voting for the NDAA, they're actually calling my office and saying, do everything you can to support the Ukrainian people. Yay. Exactly. And so, like I said earlier, that helps us. That helps, I believe, Congress be unified because, unfortunately, of what people are seeing, the atrocities that are going on to punch back against Putin. And therefore, that's why I think my vote last week on Wednesday for the NDA, I will not get as many calls against me into my office from some of my constituents. Instead, I think basically it gives us an opportunity to show we are coming together to support Ukraine. We are coming together to support the Ukrainian people as they defend themselves. Now, I think a key to this, a linchpin is this big debacle. Okay. And in doing the research that I did on this, it seemed that this was something where the EU and the Polish government got out ahead of the United States with those announcements that this is the deal we're going to do. Then we're just going to give the planes to America to give to Ukraine. That didn't sit well with an administration who was doing everything it can to not escalate this. And they felt it was escalatory. And then they balanced that with the armaments that we are giving them from the javelins, from the Stinger. stingers, from the new one I talked about, the Star Streaker, which is basically longer, more accurate, and faster to take down planes that go beyond the stinger and the javelin range. And so it's that type of continued effort that I think we need to do. Now with the MiGs, we can do that. We should still do that but it probably shouldn't be in public like it was. Do it behind the scenes. Make sure that the negotiations and discussions are behind the scenes rather than having basically the EU and the Poland talk about it. Talk about it with us. Let's negotiate. Let's communicate a little bit better, which I think is a lesson learned for us going forward in this war to make sure that all of our allies are on the same page. But why do you think the Poles did it the way they did? I mean, there's a sophisticated diplomatic operation. They wanted to get the planes and they were not getting anywhere with the Biden administration. And two, they were getting thrown under the bus by the Biden administration. Anthony Blinken went on TV and said, hey, got a green light. You're a sovereign country. Do what you want. You can give it to them. Yeah. And the polls were like, yeah, no, no, we're not going to fuck you. under the yeah. bus. Fuck you. Yeah. We got an yeah. explicit rating. It's fine. You know, I mean, I cannot. What's with the resistance? I, 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 that, I cannot speak to that. But I do believe that this administration needs to understand that Poland is a linchpin to this war. Okay, you're going to have basically Poland is not just on the front line. It's literally at the tip of the spear because you are going to have all of the armaments, all of the fighters who are coming into Ukraine. Where are they going to flow through? They're going to flow through Poland. And then at the same time, Poland is receiving probably over a million right now refugees out of the two million, possibly four million that are going to be coming out of Ukraine. Therefore, Poland's going to be stretched. They're going to be stretched thin. Their resources are going to dwindle because of what they're doing and the important role they're going to play. And so we need to basically step up and we do need to ensure that we're supporting Poland. And that's why I think hopefully this is a lesson learned. That this shouldn't come down to this to where it, it turns out that there's, you know, basically we refuse these types of armaments because there's a disagreement or they didn't like how people got out in front of them. And so, like I said, hopefully this is a lesson learned. So... 
here's just a small technical question for you, too. First of all, this whole weird legalism that's coming out of the White House, hey, we just don't want this to come out of a NATO base, because then if it comes out of a NATO base, then the Russians are going to think that it's a NATO action. And of course, all of those beautiful weapons that you just mentioned, the Star Streaker, I want one of those, <laughs> you know, the javelins, the stingers, they're all coming off NATO bases, too. So what the hell are you talking about? That's what about? they called you in college. But this gets back to my... <laughs> yeah, oh, that's... Uh, hey. That just called... <laughs> Member of Congress decides to stay out of that one. But when she said, nobody's really hearing about that. This was in the public. This got out there. And therefore, that's why I believe that they thought the Biden administration, like I said, I'm not here to defend the Biden administration. I didn't know what they did, but I know what they were thinking. But I do believe that they, based on the research that I've done, that they felt it was escalatory, that they felt that basically this was too public to be done right at this point. And therefore, it's deemed escalatory. And then they did the balance of, well, we got all these other armaments going in there as well. And that was their excuse for not doing it. But like I said, I cannot stress this enough. They need to push this forward and they need to provide them with those makes. Amen. Mark and I have said it a thousand times. One of the things that uh, a friend it's of ours... important that he says it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah. As much as we love our podcast. We have much influence with the Biden administration, <laughs> but not quite as much as Congressman That's Pitta. probably true. <laughs> one of the things that actually a couple of Democratic friends of mine have said is we need to stop deterring ourselves. And I thought that was actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia should be deterred by us. We shouldn't be deterred by Russia. And I, I'm nervous. The White House is in a little bit of a defensive crouch on some of this. If we're going to admit, and I think we know this, that it's not just about Ukraine. This is about China. This is about Taiwan. This is about all of those bad guys out there watching us. I'm nervous about it. No, and look, I think that's understandable. And as well as the Biden administration did prior to the invasion with the pre-bunking of the disinformation with intelligence that was put out there, they did a great job right up to that point. And then I felt like they're kind of still finding their way through the invasion. And look, I saw it this week in Congress. I'm on the Ways and Means Committee. We came out strong for an oil embargo. Next thing you know, they backed off it, and then they did it their own through executive action. We came out strong for removing them from the most favored nation status. The administration pushed back on us and said, don't do it. What we'd rather do is lower the tariffs of all the other countries and basically keep the tariffs high for Russia. And it's like, why? It just doesn't make sense. Why not? Yeah, I know. I know. So then next thing you know, they come out and say, oh, no, we're for removing them from MPTR. So I just think there's a plotting along that's happening at this point that hopefully it gets better. Because like I said, this isn't going away anytime soon. And so I just think it's finding your footing in this time of war, which can be foggy, not just in Ukraine, but sometimes in our own country. It seems to be also the same dynamic you're having with them in Congress is playing out with the allies, too. I mean, they were against the swift sanctions until the Europeans came around to it. There's a phrase of this that I didn't coin that the Obama administration coined. It's called leading from behind. Don't we need to lead from the front on this? And this is such a lost opportunity for unity because Republicans and Democrats are completely united behind this mission. It's a chance to be bold. It's a chance to bring the country. And just signal signal the world. Joe Biden ran on a promise to unite the country, and now he's been given an opportunity to do that and defend freedom. And it seems like everything is so reluctant. 
Look, I wholeheartedly believe that you cannot take away what this administration did early on prior to the invasion in leading on pushing back with the disinformation, on letting people know this is going to happen. A lot of countries didn't believe us. They thought, no, even Ukraine, I think, for the most part, basically thought they weren't going to do this. But what happened was, is the Biden administration put this information out there, did this, And I do believe that right now they are caught in this balance of what is escalation and what is support for Ukraine. And I think that's kind of the balance that they're taking in, maybe not doing it as skillfully or efficiently or as quickly as we'd like them to, but they're trying. They seem to be very concerned with domestic politics and in a way more concerned with domestic politics than with Ukraine. The reluctance on the oil is because gas prices were already through the roof before. Almost $7 in California. Oh, no. At $7 in a place in my district down in Big Sur. They seem to be so concerned with domestic politics. And Mike McFaul, who was Obama's ambassador to Russia, made a really interesting point on Twitter the other day. He was saying that they're reluctant to do these things because of domestic politics. Put aside national security for a second. What would hurt the president most would be losing in Ukraine. If you're only concerned about politics, the long game is to have a foreign policy victory for the president so he can say that we successfully repelled Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Even out of self-interest, this reluctance to escalate, this fear of Putin's reaction to everything is hurting him politically as well as hurting the effort. I got to disagree with you in the sense that I do believe it's a worry about escalating the war. I think you're dealing with someone who's not going back. He's only going forward when it comes to the escalation of this war. I do not think there's an off-ramp for this guy. I don't think he feels there's an off-ramp for anything going forward. I think this guy, his only way out is escalation at this point. And I think the Biden administration is mindful of that and very worried about that, as they should be. You heard the president say today, basically, we've talked about the no-fly zone, what that means. That essentially is an act of war. And I think basically with that and the potential chance for miscalculation and leading to and ultimately conflict with the U.S., with NATO, a nuclear war, that's why they're trying to be very careful about that. Okay, fair enough. You want any great power to act with caution and deliberation and also to see ahead. But we love the word deterrence and we love it for a reason. During the Cold War, it was mutually assured destruction. We don't want mutually assured Mm. destruction. What happens if And it really does look like he might. Putin uses chemical weapons. That's right. He really does seem to be setting the stage. Now, maybe it's all a head fake. Or a tactical nuclear. Or or attacking a a nuclear plant. Which they did. Exactly. They used chemical weapons in Syria. They, They and their allies used chemical weapons in Syria. I mean, the president is really, I mean, I don't want to be president in that circumstance. Because that hot war you're worried about, doesn't that inch it forward? The words he used today were, he said there will be severe consequences, serious consequences. Obviously, he's going to continue to keep that vague as to what that means. But let's hope it doesn't mean an all-out war with NATO, with the United States. But there may be certain steps that they can take to basically punch back as much as possible. But once again, this is leading to the escalation that I think we're worried about, that I think there's a huge potential for this to happen. And so I do believe that this administration is being very careful. We need to be very careful in this. Trust me, you'd love to say basically go in there and punch Putin right in the face, especially after what we've been hearing about the Russian military and how feeble they're turning out to be. 
And yet murdering women, children, babies, and apparently conducting rapes in a pretty wanton fashion as well. Like I said, I do believe that there are certain things that were taken into account, this administration is taken into account in making the type of determination as to what we continue to do in regards to responding to these atrocities. They are atrocities. Fred Kagan today, for the first time that I've heard him, said that he thought it's possible that they would not even be able to succeed in encircling keep. But let's say they did for a second. What do we do? Do we launch a Berlin airlift? Let's say he tries to do a Grozny on Kiev, encircles the city, absolutely decimates it, massive human rights violations, war crimes happening. And unlike Grozny, it's with a cell phone recording every war crime. Can we just stand by and allow that to happen? Or you We know? did in Syria. These are decisions that this administration is going to have to make, trust me. And hopefully they're already thinking this through. But at this point, what we're seeing from the Ukrainian people is, like I said in the beginning of this interview, this is a war of attrition. Therefore, this is going to be an insurgency. This is going to, as you what you heard on that Sunday from my good friend Jeremy Bash, this will be a Charlie Wilson's war too. I believe it has to be because, like I said, these Ukrainians, no matter if they surround Kyiv, no matter what type of devastation they're facing right now, they're fighting. They're not giving up. And we should do everything we can to support them. Well, from your mouth to the administration's ears, let me take you a little bit out with a wider aperture. One of the things that I think we increasingly understand now, and I said this once already, is that the world is watching. We have a tendency to think in these sort of soda straw ways, very Pentagon-like as well. You know, no, this is just between you know the Russians and the Ukrainians, and we're just there, and NATO standing up, and we don't think about Iran, we don't think about North Korea, we don't think about China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. If you are sitting in Beijing, this is right. This is your business, your armed services. You're thinking about this, but you're also thinking about the economy and how intertwined we are. What do you think they're thinking? Yeah, I do believe, of course, they're watching very closely. But at the same time, considering the economics of this and watching the ruble be crumpled and the Russian economy be completely crippled, they're taking that into account and they're kind of recalculating. We've got $3 trillion out there in these banks that we could be cut off from. So Is that the amount that China uh, has in foreign banks? That's, Interesting. Yes, that's what I read. Uh-huh. So I think they are starting to look at this because of the unity that we're having when it comes to the sanctions, the embargoes, and so forth. I think they're taking a little bit more into account as to what can happen beyond the battlefield, beyond the Straits of Taiwan. And so I think they're looking at this and obviously continuing to look. We know where they're at with Taiwan, but I do believe this adds another element to that that I don't know if they Who knows if they fully thought through, but I didn't. And so maybe they are when it comes to the economics behind it. So your fellow congressman, chairman of the Asia Subcommittee on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Ami Berra, he's got some concerns that he's articulated about our policy of what we like to call strategic ambiguity, Mm -hmm. such a loathsome grad school sort of a, a phrase, which means nothing to anybody. Do we need to start upping our deterrence in the Pacific now? I think when it comes to whether or not we do strategic ambiguity or strategic clarity, and I don't think that's necessarily the question. I think the question is not necessarily about Chinese restraint. It's about the United States readiness. And therefore, it's not necessarily about the U.S. resolve. I think we know what we do. The president said what we do. It's about our readiness. And therefore, what have we done, to your point, to continue to be ready for the potential 
of this type of invasion that we do see as inevitably going to happen, well, considering what it. they said. He exactly. Said, he said exactly. So. so what have we done and what do we need to do? We've done a lot. We still need to do a heck of a lot more. I firmly believe that. Not just with our defenses, not just with focusing on our allies in the area, not just with focusing on some of the islands and realizing you can't just have a few big bases. You should have a lot of little bases to spread things out because of their modernization, the missiles they have, what they've developed in the past two decades and the increases in their military budget overwhelmingly in the past two decades, having over a million troops, about 500 thousand are right across from Taiwan, the hypersonics and so forth. You know, what can we do, like I said, to spread out our resources to make sure they can't be taken out at the same time? And I think we do have to do more. What does Taiwan, what can they do? They can do a lot more as well. The strings need to be pulled on this a little bit more. Looking at the people of Ukraine, would the people of Taiwan have the same response? And looking at their quote-unquote reserve system, which is it's conscription, but it's four months a year in which what I've read, people are basically spending their time raking leaves and removing spare tires. And they've gotten to a point where they've called some of them strawberry soldiers because, and this is what I've read, because these are young men who have been sheltered by their parents and bruise easily. Then they go into the reserve system, which it's only one week a year. That's how you become and, a rotten and, strawberry. And, and now what, what the representative said, and what we, I had dinner at her residence on Monday night, what she said was, as you heard today, they're upping that a little bit more. Well, that means that they're going to be doing two weeks a year, and then they may have some shooting, more shooting involved in their initial conscription training of that four months. I think there needs to be more because I think what they're starting to say now is Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow. But there's also this attitude of, well, the U.S. is going to come to our aid. Do we need to fight? So I'd like to hear a little bit more about the will of the Taiwanese and where they're at in regards to if something like this happens, are they willing to put up the fight quick enough? To where then we can come in because as we know it's going to take time there's going to be this initial barrage it's going to be cyber missiles embargoes the frontline islands but then they still got to traverse the rough seas and deal with the rugged coastline deal with the mountainous terrain are they going to take advantage of that are the people of taiwan going to take advantage of that like you're seeing in ukraine and that fortitude they set from, a high bar from, don't they from the ukraine. Ukraine. look i hope they do i mean i don't want to disparage the taiwanese in any way whatsoever I just think that this is something that you look at Taiwan, you look at the threat to Taiwan, look at Israel. I mean, they kind of have the same ongoing threats, but you don't have those questions about the will of the Israelis that you do true. of the Taiwan. So if the Ukrainians were the Israelis, then they would have blown up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline right now. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that, that's a, to be said for Israel. That's true. You mentioned our readiness. Let me push back on something you said at the beginning of the podcast, which is that the NDA sufficiently funded our defenses. We, we should say, by the way, National Defense Authorization Act, the only authorization act that has been passed year in, year out for the last 25 plus years, unlike any other authorization act. That is a point of pride. And in a bipartisan fashion. Absolutely. Okay, so, so with all Something those, good about Congress. All, okay, and now I'm going to crap all over the, uh, okay. the good thing that Congress Good cop, done. bad cop. So we had Jack Keane on the podcast, General Jack Keane, on the podcast recently. And one of the things he pointed out was that we don't have a two-war capability. And so if things go south in Europe and Putin were to take on a NATO ally and we had to engage in direct combat, we don't have the capability to deal with Taiwan and Ukraine right. at the same time. And 
he pointed out that during the Cold War, our defense budgets were routinely 7% of GDP. Mm. We're below 3% of GDP for our defense budget right now. We just gave the military a pay cut. 5% pay raise when you got almost 9% inflation is a pay cut. We're resourcing our military in a peace dividend fashion still and not for a world where we could be engaged in combat in two continents at the same time. Do we have to start spending more on our national defense? Look, I would say no. I mean, I think we increased it by $25 billion, not including the $13 billion in aid and armaments to Ukraine. So we're seeing significant amounts go towards our readiness. But we're not ready. Look, let's see where we're at with this extreme amount of money that we're spending on the military. Can I just interrupt you for one second? I mean, one of the things that we have to recognize, and I know you know this better than I do, is that the spending that we did during the Cold War, yeah, okay, maybe this isn't a new Cold War. We can debate that. But the spending that we did during the Cold War was for a very, very different budget. Now, our defense budget is so backlogged by its social spending, by its health care, its pensions. That money is eating out our readiness. So even when you up it by $25 billion, you're taking a tiny nibble out of that because it's gone up so much. Understood, but I do think those things are important for our troops, as I have heard, as don't, don't I have heard as well. And that's why I support those types of provisions but in the means, NDAA. It, but it means less uh, money. But then we should do a better job basically making sure that that money gets to the right places where it should be. Yeah. Okay, I know, I know. But <laughs> look, I agree with you in that sense that it's not as efficient as it should be. And therefore, there is this backlog. But we do have to provide for men and women in uniform and their families as we try to for do sure. on the central coast of California. Well said. Can, you got that central coast of California in there again. Let's <laughs> That's talk, true. Let's talk about climate change. And why are we right now in a situation where gas prices are going up so much? Is because of the war on fossil fuels and this obsession with trying to divest of fossil fuels before alternative sources are ready. And so Biden was dragged into doing oil sanctions. He hasn't done oil sanctions. He's done an oil ban because gas prices were already up so high because we've reduced domestic production. Shouldn't we be focused on increasing domestic production right now, temporarily even, so we can tell the left, we can wage our war on fossil fuels after Putin's Would you like me to answer this on your behalf? I know where this baby's going. (laughs) I believe that obviously in looking at the production and the capacity in its current state, it's maxed out. That's what Secretary Granholm said that to us. She said that basically to Democrats, Republicans in a bipartisan meeting, basically that it's maxed out. And that's why you don't hear much about the XL pipeline argument as well, because you knew that was a canard, because basically it wasn't about turning it on. It was about the amount in it. And we used our rail basically to double the amount coming from Canada since 2008 in regards to that. Now, I believe that we can continue to make sure that we pivot away from fossil fuels because I think that's important. I think we know that there is a climate crisis. I'm a firm believer in that. And we need to be doing everything we can. Now, at the same time, it doesn't mean we can't pat our heads and rub our belly at the same time and dealing with continuing the type of production that we're doing in order to ensure that there are reduced prices is what we're hoping for. But right now, prices aren't determined by what goes on in the United States. It's determined by what's going on in the world. And that's what we're dealing with right now. So I know as much as you like to blame the Biden administration for a lot of things, I would have to push back and say there's a lot more that you need to take into account besides just the way they're dealing with production of 
fossil fuels. The president is pushing for OPEC and for Saudi Arabia to increase production to reduce gas prices. And would, it, would it be helpful in that? And then apparently the Saudis would not take his phone call, which is quite an embarrassing moment for America if the leader of Saudi Arabia would not even take a phone call from the president. Would they be more amenable to increasing production if we weren't in the process of trying to get a new Iran deal? Well, look, I think you also have this administration releasing or working with our partners to release, what, 60 million right. barrels a day, or 60 million barrels from the strategic, the, strategic, yeah, the, Spro, yeah. the strategic petroleum reserve. And I think that's something that they're trying to do. I disagree with them negotiating with Venezuela or looking at Iran to basically increase the oil output, the global output. Good I think you. that's something that they should not do. I think that's actually kind of embarrassing that they were doing that, to be frank. And so I would hope that there are are other avenues that they can do. Look, the one thing that I've heard that's potential is, is they even said that they could look at our shale even more, but that was supposed to be increased already by 8%. And because of that, there's a supply chain issue with the sand that's needed to conduct shale, that type of fracking as well. So like I said, this is a lot more than just saying drill, baby, drill. There's a lot more complicated. I wish it was easier, but it's not. There are a thousand more questions I know both of us want to ask you, but we promised 30 minutes. We've gone a little bit over already. So (laughs) let me say thank you. We really, you know something? Mark and I firmly believe that we agree on so much more than we disagree on between Republicans and Democrats. And this is the kind of conversation we should have more of because you need to prove to people we can have civil conversations and civil disagreements. You bet. And we do. And let me tell you, that's one thing that I tried to express today, that there are Democrats and Republicans that are not in Washington, D.C. to yell and scream. There are Democrats and Republicans, for the most part, that are there to actually govern. And to me, that's one of the best parts about the job are the people I work with on both sides of the aisle that understand what it means to represent their constituency by getting stuck. Done. Well, thank well, you for being one of those guys. Exactly. Trying to. Thank you. Trying. So thank you. Thank Thanks you so much for you. joining us. Okay, so Danny, first of all, Jimmy Panetta is a great congressman. I am so happy that he joined us on the podcast. I'm sorry, Congressman, that I pushed you a little on the war on fossil fuels, but uh, I had to do it. <laughs> I know. Mark was ready to go for another hour. But in a good fight. No, he's a great leader. And this is just as an aside. I wish we had more people like him on both sides who are willing to come on a conservative podcast, come to AEI, and to talk to us and to work across party lines to do what's right for the Ukrainian people and for our national security. I agree wholeheartedly. I really do. And obviously, you always like it when your guest agrees with you, but especially when your guest agrees with you and criticizes, in this case, his party in the White House. So one of the things that has driven me berserk over the last week is that we did not block the purchases of Russian oil in the United States, and we did carve-outs in the Europe sanctions and in the Europe banking sanctions and in the SWIFT sanctions to allow, for example, Gazprom to continue to sell oil and gas to Europe and to do banking. It's a huge loophole. So what does the Biden administration do? They get bullied by Congress to finally block the importation of Russian oil and gas into the United States. And they go, if I had not read this, I wouldn't have believed it. They secretly go to Venezuela, to Maduro, a dictator who has Americans in prison, and they beg him to sell us oil. 
they go to the Saudis and they say, hey, we know been really mean to you. And yeah, you kind of suck and we really don't like you. And trying to do an Iran deal, it's really going to hurt you. But could you put some oil on the market? But it's worse. The Saudi crown prince wouldn't take his call. Right. Because that, I mean, just think about what that says about America standing on the world stage. That a And not just him, the, the leader of the UAE as well wouldn't take his call, if I understand it correctly. World leaders are not taking the call of the president of the United States, even just to give him the courtesy of saying no. no. <laughs> They're just like, no, we're not talking to him. Just, Crazy. just insanity. So, but it gets worse. Okay. So we are in the midst of negotiations in Vienna, as if none of this is happening in Ukraine, with the Iranians to go back into this lousy Iran deal. And you guys have seen Mark and me write about this. But if you want more information, don't hesitate to turn to us. But they're doing this. And who is running that negotiation? The Russians. As if, <laughs> I swear to you, they had not just invaded Ukraine. No, it gets worse. The Russian negotiator at those agreements posted a video, an interview, in which he talked about how he teamed up with Iran and how they pantsed us in the negotiations. They're bragging about how the Russians are bragging about how, first of all, we shouldn't be in it. We're trying to make Russia a pariah. Why are we even at a diplomatic table with a Russian diplomat at all? Well, you won't believe this, but it gets worse. Oh, my gosh. It really does. So... This is the thing. We're about to do this terrible deal. It's days and days and days away, right? It's always moments away. And the Russians turn around. Don't tell the Iranians either. They turn around and they go, oh, if we're going to be able to support this deal, we're going to have to have an exemption to the Russia sanctions in order that we can do full business with Iran. Because, you know, you've got to give relief to Iran and that relief has to come with Russia included. The Iranians went home and were like, uh, what? They didn't have any idea, but it blasted apart the negotiations. But the worst thank God. that well, we can thank God for the Russians in this regard, but the worst part of this is one of the arguments that the Biden administration is making for getting back into this Iran deal, a dreadful Iran deal, and giving them ninety billion dollars, right? Why? Is because we need their oil. It's just, you know, if you wrote this as one of those great 1970s British sitcoms, yes, minister, yes, prime minister, yes, Mr. President, you wouldn't believe it. It's and, farce. And then they're going to the Saudis and asking them to produce more oil. The Saudis are against the Iran deal. They were very happy with President Trump pulling out of the Iran deal and the maximum pressure campaign on the Iranians. They don't want this Iran deal. And so the Biden administration is first like doing something that they don't want because they think Iran poses an, uh, correctly poses an existential threat to their country. And then, by the way, would you do us this favor? Because I'm facing political pressure at home because gas prices are through the roof. In Jimmy, Could, in Jimmy in, Panetta's district, $7, $7 a, a gallon. gallon in Jimmy Panetta's district. So pretty, pretty pleased. Could you do me a political favor yeah. and help us relieve the price of gas so that I don't lose the midterm elections? No, come on. It is. It's farcical. It's farcical. But here's the other thing. It's not even good politics. I made this point with Congressman Panetta that, as Michael McFall said, if you're concerned about the political ramifications of gas prices going up, you should be even more concerned about the political ramifications of losing Ukraine. Did he not recognize to the, to a con- how much... To a country that was getting knocked back with a pickle jar. Exactly. I mean, truly, this, it's political incompetence on top of foreign policy incompetence, because did he not notice how his poll numbers 
collapsed after, after the debacle Afghanistan? in Afghanistan? Does he not think that the worst thing that could happen to him would be to reinforce those impressions with another defeat, international defeat in Ukraine? Pretend you don't care about the morality of what's happening in Ukraine. Pretend you don't care about the great power competition between the United States and Russia. Compare, pretend and you China. don't care. And China and the national security implications about it. Pretend that all you care about is the midterm elections and the well-being of the Biden presidency. Your number one goal should be to make sure you win in Ukraine. Yep. And they're scared of their shadow. But you know why? Because they don't understand the American people. Yes. Because they think that the American people are just like them. They think the American people are averse to all of this, that they believe there's going to be World War Three. But they're isolationist. They that they're isolationist. And of course, every single poll that we've seen suggests exactly the opposite, so, except among the sort of Gen Zers who just got the right to vote last week. And what they think, honestly, on this doesn't matter because they're not the people who go to the ballot box. No, that's exactly right. And look, this is the great thing about the American people is that there was a poll came out the other day, 75% of Americans, including both majorities of Republicans and Democrats, want to establish a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Now, look, I think if you explain to them the dangers of that and that we might get into a shooting war with the Ukrainians, that support might ebb a little bit. But what it's saying is they're looking at Ukraine. They're looking at the courage of the Ukrainians. They're seeing these cell phone videos that people are taking of Ukrainians driving by a highway and throwing a Molotov cocktail out of their window at a Russian tank and setting it on fire. They're looking at President Zelensky and the model of courage and leadership that he's presenting. And they're saying, we need to help these people. Right. And if we fail to help these people, if our president fails to help these people, he's going to pay a political price that's going to make Afghanistan right. look there's, like nothing. There's every reason. You're exactly right. Every reason here. Political, strategic, moral, for Joe Biden to do the right thing. And but yet he, he can't. can't. find the right thing. <laughs> and with that note, thanks guys for listening. We know we've done a lot on Ukraine, but this really... That's it what really, people care about. I think it, people it want to hear it. Yep. And we're going to keep doing it as this war unfolds. We have a bunch of great guests. We just came back from the AI World Forum, and there are a bunch of really interesting people that have said some really interesting things. The AI World Forum is off the record, so we can't tell you what they said, but we're going to reach out to them and invite some of those people to our podcast to tell you what they told the folks at the World Forum. And just as a teaser, I think we really learned a lot about how important Ukraine is to what's going to end up happening with China. Amen. So keep listening, send us your suggestions, and take good care of yourself. Thanks. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.